Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Just now this ship was probed with Berthold radiation. I wasn't aware of this. Truthfully, Jean-Luc, I've been entirely preoccupied by a most frightening experience of my own. A couple of hours ago, I realized that my body was no longer functioning properly. I felt weak. I could no longer stand. The life was oozing out of me. I lost consciousness. You fell asleep. Oh, terrifying. How can you stand it day after day? You'll get used to it. You're listening to episode 98 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the mystery of sleep. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. <laughs> well, did you get enough sleep there, Jimmy? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just we record these things early on a Saturday morning West Coast time. So, yes, yeah. that's right. So let's talk about sleep. Every day, creatures all over the world go into shutdown mode. They stop moving. They lose consciousness. And then hours later, their minds turn back on again and they go about their business. But something else also happens in between. They have strange visions that don't correspond to what happens to them in waking life, what we call dreams. Humans spend a third of their lives asleep, about eight hours a day, but some creatures go for months at a time asleep. Yet, despite how common sleep is, science isn't sure why it happens. And many of us, uh, me included, don't get enough sleep as we need. So what is sleep? Why does it happen? What's the meaning of dreams? And more importantly, how can we get more of this precious commodity? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, this is a patron's episode, right? Yeah. Every month we ask our patrons to select one of the topics that we'll be covering. And this month they wanted to hear about the mystery of sleep. We also often mention when we have a personal connection to a story. And obviously we all have a personal connection to sleep. But you have another thing in mind with your personal connection this week, Jimmy. Yeah, I'm an insomniac and I always have been. When I was a boy, the main problem I had was falling asleep. Um, I just lay in bed and my mind would race and I just cycle through idea after idea for hours. And that can still occur in adulthood, especially if I'm working on a writing project. Sometimes I'll even need to get out of bed and start typing just to get the words out of my head so I don't lay there rewriting endlessly the same section of text over and over again. As an adult, though, there's also been another problem, which is staying asleep. You know, I'll wake up during the night, sometimes multiple times, and can have a hard time getting back to sleep. The good news is that in recent times, I've been able to improve my sleep, and I'll be sharing uh, what worked for me, as well as tips from professional sleep experts. Okay, and then what will we be covering in this episode? Well, there's so much to say about sleep, we won't be able to get to it all. So we'll save some for future episodes. For example, we will definitely have a future episode on dreaming. 
So we'll talk about dreams and what they mean or, and don't mean in the future. Also, we'll talk about sleep disorders in the future, things like sleepwalking and sleep paralysis. It's the opposite of sleepwalking, which plays a role in some alien abduction stories. In this episode, we'll be focusing on the reasons for sleep and the single most common sleep disorder, insomnia, which is way more common than any of the others. Okay, so sleeping is something we do every day, but it's still a mysterious phenomenon. So to set up for today's episode, is there a way to remind ourselves just how strange it is? Yeah, here's a clip from Dr. Craig Heller's Great Courses class, The Secrets of Sleep Science, where he talks about just how mysterious sleep is. Bear in mind that Dr. Heller is an expert in sleep science. He even runs a sleep study laboratory. But like other scientists, he's fundamentally mystified by sleep. And here's what he says. It is absolutely astounding to me that we spend one third of our lives sleeping and we don't know why. The function of sleep qualifies as one of the great unanswered questions of science. So we really don't have a good answer for why we sleep, but the phenomenon itself is bizarre. Dr. Heller invites us to imagine the following scenario. You're a new parent and your pediatrician does an examination of your baby and comes to you with the following news. You have a beautiful, healthy baby, but there are a few things you should be aware of as new parents. Frequently, your baby will go unconscious and be unresponsive to normal stimulation. The frequency of these attacks will gradually decrease to one a day by the time she goes to school, but they will last throughout life. Periodically, when unconscious, she will be paralyzed, except for spastic muscle twitches. Her eyes will dart back and forth, and her heart rate and breathing rate will get irregular. As she gets older, she will have hallucinations during these episodes. She will hear voices and see things that aren't there. Some of these things will be very strange and maybe even terrifying, causing her to sit up and utter screams of fright. But not a problem, because this condition is also characterized by total amnesia. She won't remember any of these terrifying experiences. Loss of consciousness, paralysis, spastic muscle contractions, cardiac and respiratory arrhythmia, hallucinations, terror, amnesia. My word! You're extremely anxious and upset, but the doctor tells you nothing to worry about. This is all completely normal. It is sleep. So sleep is really weird. By the way, Dr. Heller's course on sleep science is really good, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes so you can get it for yourself. Let's start with the basics. How can we define sleep? There are a bunch of ways, but for our purposes, I want to define sleep as a regularly recurring natural loss of consciousness. Its most defining feature is the fact that we lose consciousness. But, you know, we can lose consciousness for a bunch of reasons, such as being injured or put under anesthesia. But those aren't what we're interested in. That's not normal sleep. So it's not just a loss of consciousness. It's one that occurs naturally without some unusual event happening like injury or anesthesia. It's also regularly recurring. In humans, it normally occurs on a daily basis, and the same thing is true of most creatures. It may even naturally occur multiple times a day, but it's characterized by having some kind of natural recurring cycle one way or another. This loss of consciousness is also easily reversible. All you have to do is shout or jostle a sleeping creature to make it return to consciousness, which is important because we're vulnerable when we sleep. And so we need to be able to wake up quickly in case we're attacked. 
This is something you can't do as easily if the creature is unconscious because of injury or anesthesia. So that's reversibility is one of the things, easy reversibility is one of the things that distinguishes sleep. Also, there is a typical sleep posture that creatures will have. In humans, this is lying down, either on your side or your back or even your face, but it's lying down. Humans don't normally sleep standing up. Our muscles are also relaxed and not rigid while we sleep. But the sleep posture can be different for other creatures. Bats famously sleep hanging upside down. And some animals like horses, zebras, and elephants, as well as many birds, sleep standing up. In the case of big-bodied animals, it's because they'd have trouble getting up and running if they were attacked while they were asleep, so they need to already be standing. And in the case of many birds, it's because they live in trees and need to cling to a branch while they sleep, so they naturally do it standing up. But whatever the posture is, there's always a characteristic sleep posture that creatures assume when they lose consciousness. Also, in many creatures, sleep is associated with dreaming, though we usually don't remember our dreams afterwards. So to put it all together, sleep is a regularly recurring natural loss of consciousness that many creatures experience and that is easily reversible. It's characterized by a special sleep posture and is often associated with dreaming. Now, those things have been obvious to us throughout history, but in recent years, and especially in the 20th century, scientists have learned much more about sleep. Well, what are some of these things that they've learned? One is how much sleep humans naturally need. This changes during different stages of life, but an average healthy adult will get about eight to nine hours of sleep per day when left on their own without pressures like having to keep a work schedule. So naturally, humans uh, just biologically want to get about eight and a half hours of sleep a day unless something intervenes to mess that up. Another major discovery is that sleep is structured. There are a number of different subtypes of sleep that humans experience each night. There are two fundamental types. Scientists notice that during certain phases of the evening, their subjects' eyes rapidly dart back and forth, even though they're closed. And these phases in the sleep cycle came to be known as rapid eye movement phases, or REM, or REM sleep. The other phases in the sleep cycle where the subject's eyes weren't rapidly darting about came to be known as non-rapid eye mo movement or non-REM sleep. Scientists also notice that there are patterns in how the cycles occur. When you first go to sleep, you enter a non-REM phase. The non-REM is always first, and then it's followed by a phase of REM sleep. There are about five or six cycles of non-REM and REM sleep each night, each of which lasts for about 90 minutes. Scientists have also discovered that the ratio changes in these cycles. In the earlier cycles, you have more non-REM sleep and the REM phase is shorter. So like in the first 90-minute cycle, the REM phase may be 10 to 20 minutes, but in the second phase, it's like 30 minutes and then it's like 45 minutes. As the REM phases get longer, the non-REM phases, of course, get shorter, but the total average is around 90 minutes. So it's kind of like you need more non-REM sleep at the beginning of the evening and you need less of it later so you have more REM sleep later on. After the invention of the electroencephalograph, or EEG, scientists discovered that our brain waves change as we go through different phases of sleep. When we're quietly resting but still awake, 
we have a lot of what are called alpha waves. These are brain waves that have a frequency of about 10 hertz. If something has a frequency of 1 hertz, that means it pulses one time per second. And we're going to play you to illustrate the rhythms of these brain waves. We're going to play you some click tracks that I made using Audacity. But Dom, we have a note for folks, depending on the kind of, depending on how they're listening to this podcast, what do we need to tell them? There are certain podcast players where you can speed up or slow down the playing of the podcast. And some podcasts try to take out blank space or, you know, empty space in order to tighten up things, you know, and remove silence. So the when we play these frequencies, they may, they're intended to be a certain length of time in between each click. Well, your podcast player may uh, mess with that frequency. So if you really want to hear exactly how it sounds, if, that's, if, if that happens to you, you can always go to our website and play the file from there, and it will be exactly uh, as we recorded it. But, um, you know, your mileage may vary. Yeah, you can also, and also if you're one of the folks who listens to podcast at 1.25 or 1.5 speed, you may want to go down to just one to hear these properly. So here's a click track of a one hertz or one pulse per second signal. When we're resting but awake, we have alpha waves, which means the neurons in our brains are pulsing around 10 times a second, which is like this. When we fall asleep, our brain waves get slower in the first stage of non-REM sleep. We spend a few minutes with our brains generating what are called theta waves. Theta waves pulse around six times a second, which sounds like this. When we go into deeper states of non-REM sleep, and when we enter deep sleep, we are generating delta waves, which average around 2.5 pulses per second, like this. But in deep sleep, delta waves can get even slower, down to about half a pulse per second, which sounds like this. Then, once we're at the bottom of deep sleep, we start to progress back up through lighter stages of non-REM sleep until we're almost awake. At that point, REM sleep begins, our eyes start darting around, and we start having much faster alpha waves again. We may even wake up briefly, change position in bed, and then start the next 90-minute cycle of sleep. So sleep cycles are like a roller coaster. We enter non-REM sleep, which gets progressively deeper with slower and slower brain waves. Then we start coming back up. Our brain waves get faster, and we enter REM sleep. We may wake up briefly, even without remembering it, and then it's back down into the next sleep cycle. All told, there are about five or six such cycles per night, unless something interferes with that. Scientists also discovered something else about these cycles, which is how they're related to dreaming. You may have heard that we only dream in REM sleep, so that we need to achieve rapid eye movement sleep in order to dream. I believe what the doctor means is that humans enter into what is known as REM sleep, rapid eye movement. It is the level of brainwave activity at which one dreams. We have to dream in order to survive. If we don't reach REM sleep, we don't dream. Yeah, actually, that's not true. 
what scientists have done is used EEGs to monitor which stage of sleep their subjects are at and then wake them up at different stages and ask if they could remember dreaming. What they found is that dreaming is most common in REM sleep, but it's not exclusive to it. Sleep scientists divide the non-REM sleep into three phases, phase three being the deepest of them. So if you imagine someone in that deep sleep state or stage three, when scientists woke them up, only about 20% of the subjects could remember dreaming. But after deep sleep, people begin passing up through the lighter layers of non-REM sleep on their way to REM sleep. And when scientists woke people up from stage two, that's the next lightest non-REM level, 55% of people could remember dreaming. Then once they achieved REM sleep, 90% of people could remember dreaming. So dreaming is most common in REM sleep, but it also occurs in every cycle. They also found that there was a difference in the kind of dreams that people were having in these phases. In the non-REM phases, the dreams were less vivid and more ordinary. So, you know, you're just driving to work or something. But in REM sleep, the dreams were more intense and bizarre. So you're driving to work on a tricycle while being attacked by pterodactyls or something. That's awesome. So we've, we've been talking about sleep in humans, but what about other creatures? D do all creatures sleep? Sleep is really widespread in life on Earth. Here's what Matthew Walter, one of the world's top experts on sleep science, says in his book, Why We Sleep. Without exception, every animal species studied to date sleeps or engages in something remarkably like it. This includes insects such as flies, bees, cockroaches, and scorpions, fish from small perch to the largest sharks, amphibians such as frogs, and reptiles such as turtles, Komodo dragons, and chameleons, all have bona fide sleep. Ascend the evolutionary ladder further, and we find that all types of birds and mammals sleep, from shrews to parrots, kangaroos, polar bears, bats, and of course, we humans. Sleep is universal. Even invertebrates, such as primordial mollusks and echinoderms, and even very primitive worms, enjoy periods of slumber. In these phases, affectionately termed lethargus, they, like humans, become unresponsive to external stimuli. And just as we fall asleep faster and sleep more soundly when sleep-deprived, so too do worms, defined by their degree of insensitivity to prods from experimenters. How old does this make sleep? Worms emerged during the Cambrian explosion at least 500 million years ago. That is, worms, and sleep by association, predate all vertebrate life. This includes dinosaurs, which, by inference, are likely to have slept. Regress evolutionary time still further, and we've discovered that the very simplest forms of unicellular organisms that survive for periods exceeding 24 hours, such as bacteria, have active and passive phases that correspond to the light-dark cycle of our planet. It is a pattern that we now believe to be the precursor of our own circadian rhythm, and with it, wake and sleep. So sleep, or sleep-like phenomena, are basically universal among animal life and date back more than 500 million years. So do all animals then dream? That's not clear. If you've watched a dog sleeping, you've undoubtedly seen it twitch its paws and whine like it's having a dream. And it is. Experimenters have also done studies on cats where they deadened, and by deadened I mean destroyed, 
the part of the brain that keeps them from moving while they're asleep. And sure enough, once they did that, cats started acting out dreams, uh, you know, looking at things and pouncing and at, on things that weren't there and so forth. It looks like mammals and birds have non-REM and REM sleep cycles. And so to the extent that REM sleep is tied to dreaming, it looks like mammals and birds do dream. But it's not clear that all kinds of animals do. You know, some of them like fruit flies. We don't have good evidence of them dreaming. We humans sleep mostly at night. But what about other creatures? Well, humans are primarily diurnal, meaning they're mostly awake during the day. Like humans, other primates are also diurnal, as are some other mammals, birds, and reptiles. But other animals are nocturnal, meaning they're mostly awake at night. Creatures like owls and bats are famously nocturnal. Other animals are crepuscular, meaning that they're most awake and active around dawn and dusk. Crepuscular animals include deer, rabbits, and mice. They also often include the predators. Uh, that eat such creatures like cats, you know, eat rabbits and mice. And so they need to be awake at the same time as their prey so they can go after the prey while it's active and not hiding. That's why your house cat wants to lay around the house and sleep all day taking naps, because through the influence of domestication, cats have kind of adapted to your human diurnal cycle, but they're still natively crepuscular. So they want to take a lot of naps when you're active and awake. Cats also kind of fringe between being crepuscular and, noc and straight on nocturnal, which is why they're all also more active at night. There are even creatures that are active only at dawn. These are called matutional animals, and examples include blue sharks and some bees that are active only around dawn. And then lastly, there are animals that are only active around dusk. These are called vespertine animals from the Latin word vesper, which means evening. So that's why vespers are evening prayers. Vespertine creatures include some kinds of moths and flies, as well as their predators. Like bats. Yeah. Some bats are vespertine. I love that name, vespertine. That's the best one. Mm, sounds like a really, really relaxing drink. <laughs> it does. You know, use, your, use your decoder ring. Remember to drink your vespertine. <laughs> So if humans need eight to nine hours of sleep a day, what about other creatures? Not every creature gets the same amount that we do. Uh, a common pattern is that creatures with larger brains generally need more sleep. Another is that predators tend to get more sleep than prey animals. For example, lions sleep about 16 hours a day, but antelopes only get seven. And this is likely because prey animals need to be vigilant against attacks from predators, so they need to be awake more of the time. Some animals, including many aquatic mammals, have a really weird sleep pattern where they only sleep with half of their brain at a time. Researchers noticed that dolphins sleep with one eye open, and so they did follow-up studies that showed dolphins first sleep with one half of their brain while remaining vigilant with the other, and then they flip it and sleep with the other half of their brain. Half-brain sleep is also common among whales, manatees, walruses, hippopotami, and some seals. Some of the seals even change how they sleep, using the half-brain thing when they're in the water, but then sleeping with their full brain when they're on land. Okay, earlier you mentioned that most creatures have a daily sleep cycle. 
Are there some that don't have a daily sleep cycle? At least for part of the year, yes. For example, migrating birds can keep flying for days when they're over the ocean, and they need much less sleep during the migratory season. When researchers captured them and stopped them from migrating, they found that the birds' need for sleep plummeted during the migratory season compared to other parts of the year when they needed much more sleep. They still needed a little bit, and they would get it through micro-sleeps or little tiny naps that last only for a few seconds. So even though they need less sleep when they're flying over the ocean, they do need a little bit, so they'll go to sleep for just a couple of seconds and then wake up again before they fall out of the sky. The flip side of that is animals that need extra sleep during certain times of year. You know, if you can't migrate and it's getting cold and there's not as much food, that's a problem if you're a mammal whose warm-blooded metabolism means you need to generate a lot of energy all the time. So what some mammals do is they hibernate. At least it's called hibernation when they do it in the winter. Uh, hibernation is common among rodents and bears, but their pattern is different. For example, ground squirrels, you know, a kind of rodent, will hibernate for six or seven days and then wake up for 12 to 24 hours and then they hibernate again. So it's like they hibernate for a week, basically, and then wake up for a little bit and then they hibernate for another week. Bears, though, will hibernate for months. They even give birth while they're hibernating. So a mama bear wakes up in the spring and guess what? She's got two or three cubs there that she didn't have <laughs> when she went to sleep. The flip side of winter hibernation is estivation, which occurs in the summer. This happens to species that don't withstand the hotter, drier weather of summer well. For example, land snails will hunker down, some of them anyway, will hunker down and estivate during the hot, dry summer months. Some insects and crustaceans do the same thing as do some turtles, crocodiles, salamanders, and frogs. There's even, and this is rare among mammals, but there's even a kind of East African hedgehog that estivates during the summer. So there's lots of different kinds of sleep out there, but in the remainder of today's episode, we're going to be focusing on human sleep. Excellent. And before we get to that, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including this time Emily, Les, Paul, Terry, and Yvonne. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World in all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, let's move to theories. What are the theories that we have about sleep? The basic ones we want to consider today are why do we sleep? How much sleep do we need? What happens if we don't get enough sleep? And of course, how can we get more? <laughs> All right. Well, let's start by taking the faith perspective. What can we say about sleep from the faith perspective? We're not going to say a lot about it in this episode. We'll be considering sleep mainly from the reason perspective. From the faith perspective, sleep is one of the things that God has built into us and many of his other creatures here on Earth. And then we need to use reason to figure out most of its mysteries. The most interesting thing about sleep from the faith perspective is that God sometimes uses dreams as a means of giving people visions and prophecies. There are many examples in the Bible of prophets receiving revelations in dreams, and even today, God can use them to give private revelations. But that subject is so interesting, we'll be devoting a whole future episode 
to the subject of prophetic and precognitive dreams. So then what can we say about sleep from the reason perspective? Why do we sleep? As we heard Dr. Heller say, this is actually one of the biggest mysteries in science. Uh, Sleep must have a very important function or set of functions because it occurs in so many species. That means it's very highly conserved by evolution. There must be considerable evolutionary pressure to keep sleep going in species, or it would be lost over time in some life forms as they have random mutations build up in their genomes. Those would naturally cause some of them to stop sleeping unless there's pressure being put on them that makes you more likely to survive and reproduce if you're a sleeper rather than a non-sleeper. So it's very important. But scientists have a hard time explaining exactly why, and there isn't a settled conclusion on the exact reason we sleep, as opposed to, for example, just resting and being quiet, but remaining conscious. Why do we need to lose consciousness? It may be that sleep doesn't have a single function, but fulfills a set of functions in a uniquely good way, that it does all these different things at once, and that's why it's so useful. Kind of like when you see a really skilled pool player make a single shot and knock multiple balls off the table at once. It may be that sleep is a single solution that takes care of multiple problems, and that's what makes it useful. What functions does sleep seem to be performing? One of the key clues that we have is the fact the brain goes offline while we're sleeping. I mean, it's still active, but we're not conscious. No other bodily system changes its behavior as much as the brain does compared to when we are resting but awake. You know, if you're resting but awake, okay, you may breathe slower, your heart rate may go down, but your lungs and your heart don't radically alter their function when you're resting versus when you're asleep, but your brain does. So this is a key fact because when our brains are offline, it makes us extremely vulnerable. And there would have to be a very powerful evolutionary advantage to taking our brains offline for a third of the day in the case of humans, or this wouldn't happen. So that suggests one of the key things sleep does for us is help the brain function better in waking life. So something's happening with our brain while we're asleep that makes it much better for us with our brain when we're awake. And this is borne out by the research. Multiple studies have shown that sleep is extremely important for learning, for example. Sleep helps us transfer memories from our hippocampus in our brain, which is a little bitty thing that can only hold so many memories. It transfers those memories from the hippocampus to our brain's cortex, which is much larger and can hold much more. This is kind of like the process of saving a document from your word processor onto your hard drive so that you have it for long-term storage. Without sleep, we wouldn't be able to learn and retain memories long-term. Sleep also helps us forget things that are unimportant so that they don't clog up our mental systems. This is kind of like removing unnecessary files and defragmenting your hard drive so that you have optimized storage space and efficiency. But sleep also impacts many other systems in the body, presumably in part, in large part, because of the impact the brain has on running the rest of the systems in the body. And as we'll see in a little bit, all kinds of things start going wrong with the body, including many you wouldn't expect if we don't get enough sleep. We've said that a typical human naturally wants about eight to nine hours of sleep per day, but 
Is that a constant throughout our lives? No, it depends on how old you are. Newborn babies sleep for about 16 hours a day, but they don't have a well-regulated sleep cycle yet, which is why they wake up at all hours and start crying. By the time they're one years old, however, most are sleeping through the night, at least most of the time, though they do still need daytime naps. Yeah, not I, my kids. I, yeah, yeah. As children get older, they need progressively less sleep. And there's also a shift that occurs in when they need sleep. To explain that, we need to mention that there's a tension in our bodies between two opposing drives, one of which is trying to keep us awake and the other of which makes us want to sleep. Which of these drives is dominant at a particular time of day varies from one person to another. That's why some people are morning people who like to get up early and others are night owls who like to stay up late. Now, here's the thing. With the onset of puberty, a biological shift occurs that turns children who used to be morning people into teenagers who are night owls. This is why teenagers and young adults have such trouble keeping an earlier bedtime. It isn't just because they're wanting to act more adult. It's also because there's a biological shift that really makes it harder for them to fall asleep early and harder for them to wake up early in the morning. It's also why it can be so hard to get a teenager or young adult out of bed early in the morning. And it's why college students don't sign up for 8 a.m. classes unless they have to. But high school students don't have that luxury, and they're often bused or driven to school early in the morning at the same time as younger children or even earlier in some school districts. They bus in the high schoolers before the kindergartners. This means that since their bodies aren't letting them fall asleep as early, many teenagers accumulate a substantial sleep debt. That makes it harder for them to learn during the day, and it makes them more irritable and moody, contributing to teenage drama. This also points to another good reason why homeschooling can be a good choice for families that are able to do it, because it allows for customized schedules rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. As people grow into adulthood, they eventually settle on being morning people or night owls, but they all still need about eight and a half hours of sleep a night. Some people think they need less, but they're often wrong and really need more sleep than they do. Unfortunately, as we age and become older adults, it becomes harder to get good quality sleep. Many senior citizens are sleep deprived, which contributes to their health problems. So what happens if you don't get enough sleep? Some of the effects are obvious and show themselves really quickly. After even a night or two of poor sleep, we become less energetic during the daytime. We also become more irritable and moody. And we have difficulty concentrating. In the workplace, that means we're less productive. But if you're driving or operating heavy machinery, that lack of concentration can cause serious accidents and even kill people. It's estimated that there are at least 10,000 deaths every year in the United States due to someone falling asleep at the wheel of a car. That's about the same number of people that are killed due to drunk driving. But you hear way more about drunk driving than you do driving while sleepy. But actually, driving while sleepy is as big a problem as drunk driving. So what happens if you're trying to stay awake for multiple days without any sleep? 
things only get worse. The Guinness Book of World Records used to have a record for staying awake, but they discontinued it because staying awake for long periods was so dangerous. So they don't have this record anymore. Back in 1959, a disc jockey in Hawaii named Tom Rounds stayed awake for 260 hours, which is almost 11 days. Uh, He did it as a publicity stunt and set the world record at the time. Then in 1964, a high school student here in San Diego named Randy Gardner broke the record by staying awake for 264 hours or exactly 11 days. Both of them experienced the usual effects of short-term sleep deprivation. They became irritable and moody. They had trouble concentrating and developed memory problems. For example, Randy Gardner was asked to start with the number 100 and mentally subtract 7 from it repeatedly. So, you know, 100, 93, 86, 79, etc. But he could only subtract it five times before he forgot what he was doing. (laughs) So the memory problems really started to set in. Also, both men started becoming paranoid and they started having hallucinations as the need for dreaming started to break through into waking life. They were trying to dream even though they were still awake. Mm -hmm. And so they started hallucinating. Eventually, the Guinness Book discontinued its record out of concern that people trying to break it would seriously hurt themselves. So Randy Gardner was the last one to set it. Since that time, there have been people who've tried to stay awake for longer periods, but they haven't been closely monitored the whole time the way Randy Gardner was. You know, you didn't have someone there checking to make sure they're still awake. The extreme case of this, though, isn't people trying to stay awake. It's people who can't fall asleep. There is a genetic condition, so it runs in families, that can cause you to lose your ability to sleep. After this genetic condition activates, you start sleeping for less and less time until you can't sleep at all. Here's how Wikipedia describes the course of the disease. The disease has four stages. One, the person has increasing insomnia resulting in panic attacks, paranoia, and phobias. This stage lasts for about four months. Two, hallucinations and panic attacks become noticeable, continuing for about five months. Three, complete inability to sleep is followed by rapid loss of weight. This lasts for about three months. Four, dementia, during which the person becomes unresponsive or mute over the course of six months, is the final stage of the disease, after which death follows. Other symptoms include profuse sweating, pinpoint pupils, the sudden entrance into menopause for women and impotence for men, neck stiffness, and elevation of blood pressure and heart rate. Constipation is common as well. As the disease progresses, the person becomes stuck in a state of pre-sleep limbo or hypnagogia, which is the state just before sleep in healthy individuals. During these stages, people commonly and repeatedly move their limbs as if dreaming. Because this disease runs in families and eventually kills you, it's known as fatal familial insomnia. The bad news is that there is presently no cure for this disease. Once the genetic problem that causes it activates, you would typically be dead in between seven months and three years as you lose your ability to sleep. The good news is that this is a very rare condition, and if it ran in members of your family, you'd already know about it. So if it doesn't, you don't have to worry. But it does illustrate the fact that lack of sleep can literally kill you. 
What about cases where sleep deprivation isn't that extreme? What happens if a person is getting sleep, just not enough for a long period of time? The little manifestations that occur with running a short-term sleep deficit compound as the situation goes on. So the, for example, the irritability and moodiness that a short-term sleep deficit produces can become a full-blown case of depression in a long-term situation. Sleep deprivation is a significant cause of depression in people. It also produces a variety of hormonal changes in your body, including decreasing the amount of the hormone leptin that we make while increasing the amount of the hormone ghrelin. To put it simply, leptin makes you feel full while ghrelin makes you feel hungry. So if you don't get enough sleep, you'll feel less full and more hungry. So you'll eat more. That leads to obesity, which is currently epidemic in the United States and in many other countries, especially in the developed world. Obesity is a chief contributor to type 2 diabetes, but it's actually worse than that because sleep deprivation will contribute to diabetes in other ways. Now, to explain what diabetes is, our bodies can only have blood sugar within a certain range or it causes damage to our cells. Whenever we eat, especially if we eat carbohydrates and to a lesser extent protein, our blood sugar spikes. So our body releases the hormone insulin to tell our cells to pull the sugar out of the blood. When they don't do that effectively, our blood sugar runs high for a long period of time and it causes damage to our bodies and we have the condition known as diabetes. Well, it turns out, and I'm specifically describing type 2 diabetes, it turns out that sleep deprivation both decreases the amount of insulin that you release and it increases the amount of insulin resistance that your cells have. That means your cells aren't getting the signal to take sugar out of the bloodstream as strongly and they're more resistant to pulling it out even when they do get the signal. The result is that your blood sugar spikes to dangerous levels. Studies have shown that even just a week of not getting enough sleep, like only getting four or five hours a night, so you're getting some but not enough, is enough, just a week of that, is enough to cause otherwise healthy adults to enter a pre-diabetic state. Now, that doesn't mean full-blown diabetes right away, but it means that you can get diabetes if the sleep deprivation goes on for months or years. Does sleep deprivation have an effect on our immune systems? Yeah. One part of our immune system are small proteins known as cytokines, which normally play a protective role, but too many cytokines can hurt us. Both the Spanish flu of 1918 and the current COVID-19 disease can cause massive releases of cytokines known as cytokine storms, which attack the body and can kill you. Sleep deprivation doesn't cause cytokine storms so far as we know, although I don't know that it's been studied in the case of fatal familial insomnia, but sleep deprivation does promote the release of cytokines and long-term exposure to too many of them is not good. Among other things, cytokines promote inflammation and long-term inflammation damages the body. It causes things like arthritis, hardening of the arteries, high blood pressure, and heart disease. And all of these are linked to sleep deprivation. 
Sleep deprivation also affects your immune system in other ways, such as decreasing resistance to infections. One study found that after being given a flu shot, which is supposed to cause you to build up antibodies to protect you from the flu, the subjects of the study who were sleep deprived had only half the antibodies of the control group. So they were more vulnerable to being infected by the flu than people who built up the proper antibodies and weren't sleep deprived. There are other bad effects of running a long-term sleep deficit, but I don't want to belabor the point. Suffice it to say that having a long-term sleep deficit leads to problems like depression, obesity, diabetes, arthritis, hardening of the arteries, high blood pressure, heart disease, and vulnerability to infections. Given all that list there, how many people run a long-term sleep deficit? Huge numbers of people, especially in the developed world. To understand this, we need to take a trip back in time and look at the kind of sleep schedule that humans evolved to have. Okay, let's do that. So we're now back in the year 100,000 B.C., the very first place that Doctor Who went after he kidnapped Ian and Barbara in the TARDIS. At this point, Neanderthals exist, as do anatomically modern humans, but they haven't yet become behaviorally modern since the Great Leap Forward hasn't happened yet and won't for about 50,000 years. Still, we're in the period that humans and their sleep patterns evolved. And what does the pattern look like? Humans then, as now, need about eight and a half hours of sleep a day, but they don't get it all at once. In many parts of the world, especially in high northern or low southern latitudes, the nights can be much longer than the days during the local winter. Even at the equator, the nights average 12 hours long, which is more darkness than humans need sleep. The only source of light that humans have at this time is fire. But you can only tell so many stories and sing so many songs around the fire before you get bored with it. And so humans typically go to bed a couple of hours after dark. If they slept straight through for eight and a half hours, they'd wake up way before it's dawn, especially in winter. I mean, hours and hours before dawn. And that's boring, too. So they developed something else. Since human adults wake repeatedly during the night, often at the end of one of their 90-minute sleep cycles, they developed so that they'd get up in the middle of the night for a while. In other words, they slept in two chunks of around four hours each. That's why people today who go to bed at 11 p.m. often wake up between 3 and 4 a.m. and can have trouble getting back to sleep. In later history, in Europe, before the invention of the electric light, these two periods had names. They were called first sleep and second sleep. And in the space between first and second sleep, people would be awake for between one and three hours, and they'd talk, tell stories, pray, be intimate, and do other things that didn't require a lot of light. And this two-phase or biphasic form of sleep was considered totally normal. The two phases of sleep at night weren't the only ones during the daily cycle, though. Early humans also seem to have taken a nap in the early afternoon, and that's why we get sleepy after lunchtime today. It isn't just the fact we've eaten lunch. While eating a big carbohydrate lunch might contribute to this sleepiness, it's not the fundamental reason for it. Scientific studies have shown that whether you eat lunch or not, 
the desire for sleep increases in the early afternoon and then decreases after that. So it looks like humans evolved to have three periods of sleep during the day, two approximately four-hour chunks at night with a period of wakefulness between them, and then one shorter nap in the early afternoon. That's what the human sleep pattern evolved to be, but now let's get back in the TARDIS and see what people in the modern developed world are doing. Okay, let's go. Now that we're back in 2020, we find that there have been a number of important changes that have affected the way modern humans sleep. The first of these to occur was the rise of the modern work schedule. Now, this varies even in the developed world. In some countries, it's still normal to take a nap or a siesta after lunch. But in places like the United States and the United Kingdom, it's not. You're expected to be constantly active and productive at work with only a short break for lunch and no time allotted for napping. This is one consequence of the so-called Protestant work ethic that expects continuous productivity. In many places, it's eliminated one of the three sleeping periods that humans evolved to have, and that's going to have consequences. It also means that everybody in society, parents and children, need to get up at the same time and be ready for work or school regardless of whether they're morning people or night owls. And needless to say, that's caused sleep disruptions for those who are naturally night owls. The second major change that happened occurred a little more than a century ago, and it was the development of electric light and other electrical gadgets. This meant that at nighttime, humans no longer had to confine themselves to activities that could be done by, by firelight, you know, whether it was a campfire or candles or oil lamps, it was all firelight. Now they could do things like read with literacy now widespread. They could read more easily at night. And as the 20th century progressed, they also started entertaining themselves with newfangled electrical gadgets like record players and radios, so they didn't have to go to the effort of doing all their singing and storytelling themselves. That meant people were now staying up later, which pushed bedtime later in the evening, so it wasn't just an hour or two after dusk anymore. But with the later bedtime, there wasn't time for a period of extended wakefulness between first and second sleep. Now you needed to sleep straight through the night, eight full hours. But we still evolved to wake up and have longer periods of wakefulness in the night. When many people woke up anyway and couldn't get back to sleep, they now thought something is wrong with me and I'm not sleeping eight hours straight. There's, there's a problem here. And they started lying in bed, stressing about the fact that they were awake and worrying how they would possibly get enough sleep for work in the morning. Then... In the second half of the 20th century, a new change happened that made things even worse. We got television and the internet. This meant spending lots of time watching, lots of time at night, watching screens that are both bright and that tend to have a blue tint. Bright light, and especially blue tinted light, tricks our brains into thinking it's daytime. So instead of helping us wind down for sleep with dim, red-tinted light, like the firelight we evolved to have at night, our brains are telling us it's daytime with this blue-tinted light, like the light from the sky that we see every day. 
You have the red firelight at night and the blue bright sky in the day. So uh, the blue tinted screens are making us think it's daytime and we need to stay awake. And that makes it, of course, harder to sleep. So it's no surprise that insomnia is a huge problem today. In many countries, we've eliminated the afternoon nap. We've shoved bedtime so late that we need to sleep for eight hours straight when we're evolved to have a period of wakefulness in the middle of the night. And we've tricked our brains into thinking it's daytime when it's not. How widespread are the problems of insomnia and sleep deprivation? It's extraordinarily common. Unfortunately, though, not everyone is on the same page when it comes to measuring it. For example, the American Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, defines short sleep as being less than seven hours, which is an hour and a half shorter than what most people really need, according to the sleep experts. According to statistics on their website, the CDC estimates that approximately 35% of adults in the U.S. have shortened sleep, meaning an average of less than seven hours. So that's a third of everybody. But according to sleep scientists, the average person really needs about eight and a half. So the true number of people who are suffering from some level of sleep deprivation is higher than that, maybe 50%. If we define severe sleep deprivation as only getting six hours of sleep a night, about 30% of the American population has that. So think about that number. If you're getting six hours of sleep a night, that's two and a half hours less than you need. And over the course of a five-day work week, that would add up to a sleep deficit, or what's also sometimes called a sleep debt, of 12 and a half hours. So one week of six hours a night, 12 and a half hours sleep debt. Can't you just make that up on the weekends? No, because there are only two days in the weekend. And if you divide 12 and a half by two, you get six and a quarter. And nobody sleeps an extra six hours on Saturday and Sunday. We're not built to have sleep swings of that magnitude every week. I mean, if you took the eight and a half you need and the six and a quarter you need to make up, that's almost 15 hours of sleep every Saturday and Sunday. I mean, you'd only be awake for nine hours a day. So no, people don't actually make up their sleep deficit on weekends, certainly not in the number of hours they spend sleeping. So what can people do to help cope with this situation? One of the things that people often do is use two very common chemicals alcohol and caffeine. They use alcohol to help fall asleep, and they use caffeine to help stay awake. Now, both of these chemicals are okay in moderation, but they're not good solutions to the problem of chronic insomnia. There can be multiple problems with alcohol, but here we'll only be looking at the ones directly connected with sleep. First, alcohol has a greater impact on someone who is sleep-deprived compared to someone who is well-rested. It causes even more severe motor and cognitive impairment if you're sleep deprived. That's a problem because many of the places that people consume alcohol are away from the home and often filled with lots of stimulus like music and conversation and dancing. But then when you're on the boring, quiet ride home, the alcohol can cause you to fall asleep at the wheel. And that's one reason that drunk driving is such a problem. Second, alcohol may help you get to sleep, but it also damages the quality of the sleep in two ways. It can cause you to wake up more often in the night. So even if you don't remember these awakenings, it's fragmenting your sleep and keeping you in the lighter stages when what you really need to do is get down into deep sleep. It also interferes with REM sleep and you need REM sleep for your brain to do its proper nightly, nightly maintenance. So there are problems with using caffeine as a solution for how to get to sleep. 
especially long-term. Then we come to caffeine, which is even more widely consumed than alcohol. Caffeine helps block the feeling of sleepiness for a time, and many people use it to avoid taking that early afternoon nap that we evolved to have. But being caffeinated and well-rested are two different experiences, as anybody who's tried staying awake with caffeine while they're seriously sleep-deprived can attest. I mean, you may be awake, but it's not fun. Also, caffeine takes much longer to clear the system than most people realize. It can take as long as seven hours. So if you drink caffeine too late in the day, it can cause you not to be able to fall asleep at bedtime. Computer freeze image. There. Do you see it? I see the chief drinking coffee. Exactly. Now look at the time index. 1,500 hours. That's right. Late afternoon. Miles never drinks coffee late in the afternoon. It keeps him up all night. You're suggesting someone tampered with this recording. Yes, I am, and I want to know the reason why. On the other hand, some people are much less sensitive to caffeine and can get away with drinking it later in the day. I wouldn't mind a cup of coffee right now. Miles, you never drink coffee in the afternoon. Sure I do. You do? So it's really a judgment call. But while both alcohol and caffeine are okay in moderation, they're not magical solutions for long-term sleep deprivation. What about pharmaceuticals, like prescription drugs like sleeping pills? These kinds of drugs are known as hypnotics, from hypnos, the Greek word for sleep. And there are different types of them. Some of them are meant to help you get to sleep, but then they quickly clear your system. Others stay in your system longer and help you stay asleep. But the latter may stay in your system so long that you have trouble waking up or functioning in the morning. There are situations where prescription drugs can be helpful to overcome sleep disorders, particularly bouts of insomnia that are temporary. But there are problems with using them long term. For one thing, you can become dependent on them, meaning you won't be able to fall asleep without using them. Also, people often develop a resistance to them, so they stop working effectively, which is kind of like the worst of both worlds if you need it to fall asleep, but it's not working anymore. Then there can be side effects from using them, like any drug, so there's a risk-benefit trade-off. And this is especially problematic for older people, and it's, it's, these days it's generally advised that senior citizens should not use sleeping pills, especially on a long-term basis. And in fact, the sleep scientists that I've been reading seem to consider pharmaceuticals kind of a last resort, something that should not be part of the ordinary person's efforts to deal with insomnia. Are there non-prescription things that people can use? There are a lot of things that can help you in the short term, including non-prescription over-the-counter sleep aids like the antihistamine diphenhydramine, also known as Benadryl. But you have to be careful even with over-the-counter things. Diphenhydramine, for example, can dramatically increase the effects of alcohol. You may remember that in episode 92, we discussed David Hahn, the radioactive Boy Scout, and he died at the age of 39 from an accidental combination of alcohol, diphenhydramine, and a pain reliever. There are also various natural supplements like melatonin, which is a neurotransmitter that helps us fall asleep. The problem is that these supplements often don't work or at least don't work long term because you get used to them. Some years ago, I tried melatonin and I didn't have much success with it, so I don't bother using it for sleep anymore. Ultimately, neither prescription nor non-prescription substances are the preferred solution for long-term sleep problems among sleep experts. 
So what do the experts recommend? These days, they're promoting a concept known as sleep hygiene, which is basically making modifications to your behavior and your bedroom so that it's easier to fall asleep and stay asleep. This is also linked with cognitive behavioral therapy to promote sleep. What behaviors do they recommend that people adopt? Some of them deal with avoiding various substances before bedtime. They recommend not eating a lot of food right before bed, especially if it's likely to cause indigestion or heartburn. You know, a light snack is one thing, but a big meal is another. Uh, they recommend not drinking alcohol or caffeine for several hours before bedtime, and they recommend not smoking cigarettes for a few hours since nicotine is a stimulant. You know, if you really needed to smoke, a pipe or a cigar would be better since you don't inhale. What about activities before bedtime? They recommend not exercising late in the evening because the exercise will rev up your metabolism and can keep you awake. They recommend avoiding mentally and emotionally stimulating activities right before bed. In other words, you know, give yourself time to relax and wind down. And some recent recommendations include limiting screen time before bed, whether it's your giant television or your tiny phone. Looking at a bright blue tinted screen can trick your brain into thinking it's daytime. And some mobile devices even have modes now that shift from tinting blue to orange after a certain hour to help you avoid this problem. So you can see if your device has that feature and you can experiment with it, see if it helps. Do they have any recommendations concerning the way you go about sleeping itself? First, keep a regular sleep schedule. Do not try to run a sleep deficit during the week and then catch up on weekends. Not only will you not catch up, changing the times that you fall asleep and wake up will disrupt your body's ability to establish a regular rhythm for sleep. So do your best to go to bed at the same time every night and wake up at the same time every morning. I have to say that this is one of the things that has really helped with my insomnia. I no longer stay up late on Friday and Saturday nights, and I no longer get up late on Saturday and Sunday mornings. And it's really helped. My bedtime and wake up time are more consistent and I'm sleeping better. The second thing is if you do wake up in the middle of the night, don't lie there stressing about it. Remember that we're evolutionarily adapted to having a period of wakefulness in the middle of the night, and so it's natural, and so is a second period of sleep. Just relax and give yourself time, and you'll likely get back to sleep. Personally, I found this realization extremely helpful, and I don't lie awake stressing about it anymore. I may still be awake, but I'm not stressing, since I know this is natural, and most of the time I get back to sleep in an hour or two. You might even get up for an hour or two and do something just like our ancestors did. Just don't start turning on lots of lights and looking at bright screens with loud noises playing. Keep it quiet, relaxing, and dim. Of course, if you find yourself having a gap between first and second sleep on a regular basis, you'll need to compensate in some way so that you get the eight and a half hours you need. Many people may not be able to change the time they need to wake up for work, but many can change their regular bedtime so that it's earlier than it was before. Some people, especially retirees and those who have flexible work schedules, may even be able to take a regular afternoon nap, just like our ancestors did. Just try not to take it so late that it interferes with getting to sleep at night. You mentioned that sleep experts also recommend changes in our bedroom to make sleeping easier. What kind of changes do they suggest? An obvious one is having a comfortable bed and pillow. Uh, mattress salesmen often point out that we spend a third of our lives asleep, so we shouldn't skimp on our bed. 
Now that's sales talk, but in this case, the sales talk is true. If your bed or pillow isn't comfortable, it's going to help keep you awake. So it's worth the extra money to find ones that are easy to sleep on. That doesn't mean buying the most expensive things out there, though, which is what the salesman may want you to do. Because those expensive things may not be the most comfortable ones for you. I, I know that from personal experience when it comes to pillows. I actually find it easier to sleep on cheap, flat pillows compared to the expensive, overstuffed ones. In fact, I find thick pillows so hard to sleep on that I take my own pillow with me whenever I have to sleep in a hotel because it just isn't worth it trying to sleep on one of those horrible, thick ones that dominate hotels these days. They didn't when I was a kid, but mm. they do now. And I'd rather lug my own pillow around with me. Another thing that's important is your blanket. And here's a surprising new recommendation. Make sure your blanket weighs enough. How heavy your blanket is has an impact on how soundly you sleep. And today you can get a weighted blanket, one that weighs 20 or 30 pounds. To achieve that, the blankets that are weighted have little pellets sewn into the pockets in the blanket. So it's not just cotton batting in there. It's, it's denser stuff. And so the blanket is heavier. And studies have begun to show that using a weighted blanket can help with a bunch of problems, including insomnia, anxiety, depression, and even hyperactivity in children. The principle is that sleeping under a weighted blanket makes you feel really snug and secure. Some people compare it to being hugged, having like an all-night hug. I started using a weighted blanket a while ago, and wow, it really helps. It's also helped many of the other insomniacs I know who swear by the technique. I even found that it helped with another problem that would keep me awake. Ever since I lost all the weight I did with intermittent fasting, my legs haven't had as much padding, and my knees would get uncomfortable at night because they'd knock together and now they're not padded. But what I found is I can, now that I have the weighted blanket, it's thicker and I can bunch up a little bit of it between my knees and they're just fine. There are a few things you should know about weighted blankets. First, they are more expensive than regular blankets, but for me, they are really, really worth it. Second, it may take you a few nights to get used to a weighted blanket if you're not used to one. So you don't want to have one night and say, oh, this isn't for me. Try it for a few nights. Third, you may need to experiment to find the right weight for you. So you may need to return one. When I first got a weighted blanket, it wasn't heavy enough. I mean, it was an improvement, but I thought this would be even better if it was heavier. And so I ordered a heavier one and then gave away the lighter one to someone else. But do your own research before buying one and see what might work for you. Uh, another recommendation is... Uh, many smaller pockets are uh, filled with the weighted material is better than larger pockets because yes. the smaller pockets keep an even distribution. Uh, yes. My kids, two of my children both have weighted blankets and it's helped them immensely. Uh -huh. So what recommendations do the sleep experts have about light and sound in the bedroom? Well, some people are extra sensitive to light or sound, but... For everybody, if there's too much of either, it'll make it harder to get to or stay asleep. So if lighter sound is keeping you awake in the bedroom, fix it. Some people may need to put in special light blocking curtains to keep the early morning light from waking them up or keeping them awake. They may even need to block cracks that light comes through at night. I know some people have street lights outside or whatever that cast light into their bedroom through little cracks at night. I know one person who put up aluminum foil 
in his windows, just covered the inside of the bedroom windows with aluminum foil to block incoming light. And also these days, various electronic devices you have in your room may have little lights on them that you need to cover up with black electrical tape. Another option is using a slumber mask. And there are a bunch of styles of these. Some of them are blocking better at blocking light than others. Some of them are like form fitting. And so don't if you've tried one before and you didn't like it, research some other options because they come in different shapes and sizes and contours. Personally, I I sometimes use a slumber mask myself, especially if I wake up in and the early morning light is keeping me awake. I'll put the slumber mask on. I don't necessarily go to sleep at night with it, but if I wake up and it's light starting to come in, I'll put on the slumber mask. I'll also use it if I need to take a a nap in the afternoon. Eliminating sound can be harder than eliminating light, but some options include using a white noise generator or another ambient sound to block distracting noises. You know, some people like listening to like rain noises or jungle sounds or things like that. And your phone or your Alexa can play those for you, or you could buy a special sleep sounds generator. Worst case, you can use earplugs, which are old school, but effective. While I'm on the subject of sound, I want to mention something that I personally find helpful. I have Alexa read audiobooks and play podcasts for me. Some other, some people also like using her to play music, you know, gentle, relaxing music while they're trying to sleep. What I have found, though, is this helps me avoid the problem that kept me up when I was a boy, my mind being too active. And as I've said, I can have that same problem now. But I found that whether I'm falling asleep or trying to get back to sleep, having Alexa read to me creates a distraction that makes it harder for my mind to keep working on its own projects. The key is finding the right interest level. What Alexa is playing can't be so interesting that I want to stay awake, but it also can't be so boring that I get annoyed with it. As a result, I often have her read me novels and stories that I already know. That way, they're enjoyable, or I wouldn't want to listen to them again, but I'm also not tempted to stay awake to find out what happens next because I know what's coming up. I I have no idea how many times I've heard the complete Sherlock Holmes that way, but it's a lot. I also have her read me books and podcasts and lectures that I use for research purposes. These are interesting enough uh, that they're distracting, but not so engaging that I can't get back to sleep. Sometimes people ask me where I learn all the stuff I know, including the stuff we talk about here on Mysterious World. And a lot of it is from, or a good chunk of it anyway, is from my late night listening sessions. In fact, I was listening to Dr. Heller's Secrets of Sleep Science lectures researching this as I was falling asleep for a number of nights. Of course, I don't get everything the first time because I end up falling asleep. That's the point. But if I listen to the same science book or set of history lectures multiple times, you know, eventually I get it all. And this is actually a great low low intensity activity while I'm in between first and second sleep. It It's interesting, but relaxing, and it doesn't generate bright light or loud noises. It's sort of the equivalent of our ancestors back in the cave. They're between first and second sleep, so they're talking. They're not making light. They're not getting up. They're just talking for a while until they fall asleep again, and that's like listening to Alexa. So what about the temperature of your bedroom? Studies have found that it's easier to get to sleep if the temperature is cooler rather than warmer, at least for most people. So for most people, don't let the room be too hot. 
open a window, use a fan, or turn on the AC if you need to. It also, it's often helpful to sleep with one leg out from under the covers so that your skin has contact with the cooler air. So you may not want to have your covers tightly tucked into the mattress. But there's one final sleep recommendation that I found to be a huge help. And what's that? Give your bedroom a dedicated purpose. Now, if you're married, you can, of course, use it for intimate relations. But otherwise, don't use your bedroom for anything but sleep. That way, you establish a habit. Your brain gets trained so that when you're in this room, your job is to go to sleep. Since that's what your brain expects, it makes it easier to do it. This recommendation was really hard for me initially because I used to do all kinds of stuff in the bedroom. I'd watch TV, I'd surf the internet, I'd write, I'd sit on the edge of my bed either typing on a laptop on my nightstand or I'd even lay in bed and have the laptop on my chest and I'd be writing books and articles in bed. Well, I was doing lots of things besides sleeping in the bedroom and so my brain subconsciously didn't associate the bedroom with sleep in particular. But eventually, I decided to give the single-purpose bed principle a try. Now, I don't watch TV, I don't surf the web, and I definitely do not write in there. I don't do anything in bed except sleep or listen to Alexa while I'm relaxing and waiting to sleep. And it's really helped. This may be the single biggest factor in the improvement of my sleep quality. At least it's one of the biggest reasons. I even feel the benefit of the habit when I put on the slumber mask. If I have that thing on my face, my brain knows it's time to go to sleep, even if it's just taking a nap on Sunday afternoon. So I highly recommend the single purpose bedroom model. So those are common sleep recommendations, but but everyone's different. So what should an individual do when they have trouble getting enough sleep? Three basic things. First, they should ask themselves the question, what is keeping me awake? And there may be more than one answer to that. It may be something physical, like an uncomfortable bed or pillow. It may be something in the environment, like too much lighter sound or too high a temperature. It may be something internal, like worrying about the fact you're not falling asleep or being too mentally active. It may be something you're doing before bed, like eating or drinking the wrong things or spending too much time with a bright screen. It may be the fact that you don't have a regular sleep schedule so that your body doesn't have an established rhythm. Whatever the case, Try to identify and eliminate the things that are keeping you awake. Now, of course, there are limits to that. Parents with newborn babies who cry at all hours are kind of stuck with the situation. You can't eliminate that one. But it will get better as the child gets older. But the basic strategy, you know, just eliminate sleeplessness by doing your best to avoid the things that cause it in your case. Second, do some research. Use the resources we're going to mention and find out more about the science of sleep and how to improve it. Then experiment with the different recommendations and find out what works for you. Third, if you're still having trouble, if you're chronically sleep deprived and your situation is not improving, consult a doctor. Today, there are sleep specialists who can do customized studies on you to find out the source of the problem. It may even turn out that you need to consult a physician because you have a sleep disorder that you may not even know about. For example, a lot of people, without even realizing it, have sleep apnea, which is a condition where you temporarily stop breathing for a moment during the night and it interferes with your sleep. A Ferengi eavesdropping device. Oh, there it is. I've been looking for that all day. 
I use it to monitor Rom's sleep. You see, ever since he was a boy, my brother's had this condition where he sometimes stops breathing in the middle of the night. The fact is, I can't sleep unless I know he's all right. Sleep apnea is a serious problem, and if you chronically snore, it may be a sign that you have sleep apnea without even realizing it. The good news is whatever the cause of your sleep deprivation, there are things that can help, and it can get better. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the mystery of sleep? Sleep is a mystery that we don't fully understand. Science has helped us understand many things, but there is still much left to figure out. It's clearly an extremely important biological process, but a large number of people aren't getting enough sleep and it's hurting them. Fortunately, there are many things that can be done to help the situation. People can improve their sleep lives. It's just a question of taking the steps needed to do so. Great. And so, Jimmy, what further resources are we going to offer folks on this topic? We'll have a link to Dr. Craig Heller's Great Courses Secrets of Sleep Science series of lectures. Also, a book by Roger Eckrich called At Day's Close, Night in Times Past. I haven't had a chance to read this one yet, but it's a history of sleep and what people did at night. And he talks prominently about like first and second sleep and shows you the historical evidence that, yeah, this was totally normal until recently. We'll also have a link to Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams, which also includes recommendations for how to use sleep to your advantage. There's also a critique of the original edition of Walker's book, so you can read both sides of the story as well as Walker's response to the critique. One of the things I noted earlier in when you, you, Dom, read one of the quotes about in every animal species that has been studied, it, it turns out it sleeps. Well, the original edition of his book didn't have the word animal. It just in every species that's been studied. And that was a big criticism. So in the second edition, he put in the word animal to make sure, make it clear he wasn't talking about plants <laughs> or fungus. Um <clears throat> There's uh, also, uh, we're going to have articles on sleep in non-humans, on hibernation, on sleep in humans, on fatal insomnia, on first and second sleep. We'll have the CDC's sleep deprivation statistics, as well as articles on sleep hygiene and the use of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, as well as information on weighted blankets. And since we had a Star Trek theme in our audio clips for this episode, we'll have a link to Memory Alpha's article on sleep. So you can see all the different things, all the different roles that sleep has played in Star Trek episodes. <laughs> it's a lot. You'd be surprised. So, uh, all right. That's great. Great resources. So let's talk about some mysterious feedback we've received from our listeners. This time, the feedback is from uh, the episode on the Black Magic Harem Conspiracy. Uh, Kelly writes on Facebook, I love this episode so much. I really enjoy the ancient Egypt-related mysterious. The whole time I was thinking that this story would make a great movie. It has Egypt, magic, and a harem of scheming wives and concubines. Great work as usual. Thank you, Kelly. It would make an interesting movie. I've even seen on YouTube a documentary. I don't know what television station did it, but I saw like one of those documentaries where they do a historical reenactment of certain parts of the Black Magic Harem conspiracy. It'd be neat to see a full movie treatment of it, but uh, you might uh, do some uh, searching on YouTube and see what comes up and you might run across a reconstruction of it. And then Bennett also writes on Facebook. It says, made me laugh. Law and order. 
And that's a reference to a sound clip that Dom put in. Dom is a big Law and Order fan. And so since we were dealing with a, ju- a judicial case, he used the Law and Order kind of the very distinctive I- sound. sound. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you both for your feedback and everyone else as well. Uh, Jimmy, what mysterious headlines do we have this week? This week, uh, we have a theme of artificial intelligence or AI. And one of the stories is about the Vatican backing AI regulations to protect people. As artificial intelligence is getting more advanced, there's more study being done of what rules do we need to have to protect people. And the Vatican has recently backed that effort. So we'll have a link to that. And it's important that we do have rules because we'll have a link to another article concerning what happens when your AI learns to lie to you. (laughs) As science fiction has told us, never good things. (laughs) Yeah. And so this one explores all the different ways that that might happen and hopefully ways to deal with them. Awesome. All right. So that's it from us. So what did you think about this mystery of sleep and what are your theories about sleep? or even you know the issues that come up for you in your sleep. Let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, or send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, or you can send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of Mysterious Feedback. Uh, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at mysteriousworldstore.com for links to all of the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show, not just today, but in all of our episodes. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, since it's the month of May, which is a Marian month, we're going to be talking about the apparitions of Our Lady of Akita in Japan. Excellent. So you can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to these mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember... To help us to continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Sir, as my final duty as acting captain, I order you to bed. I shall do the same for all personnel. Oh, well, Mr. Data. And Mr. Data, thank you. Pleasant dreams, sir.